Hello, Dan here. Season two is still on the way, but to tide you over, here's one of our subscriber episodes from This Is History Plus. We're plugging the series gap with interviews with some of my favourite historians to chat about all things Plantagenet and medieval history. This time, I'm joined by Tobias Capwell, curator of arms and armour at the Wallace Collection and a leading authority on medieval violence. I hope you enjoy it. See you at the end. Great to have you, Toby. Thanks for inviting me. I'm particularly excited to be talking to you today because yesterday I went jousting. Really? Really. First time. Huh. Where? In Warwickshire. Uh-huh. You and I have talked over over the years about knights and about riding and about jousting and about fighting on horseback, and I've always been very conscious that you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I think I'm right in saying, and, and do it, right? Yeah, I, I try. I mean, I've... This is an interest that I've had since I was a kid. And, you know, children, they want to do things. I wanted to be a knight a long time before I wanted to be a curator in a museum. And when you approach a childhood interest, you try and do it. I knew that knights were, were horsemen, so I convinced my mother eventually to let me learn how to ride. And I learned whatever martial arts I could learn. And it's just kind of gone from there. Uh, the academic career is a byproduct. Do you remember when you first became interested in knights? What was the moment? I think the earliest memory that I have is being taken to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City when I was about five years old. And the Met has one of the world's greatest collections of medieval Renaissance arms and armor. They have it displayed in this gorgeous daylit gallery with sunlight flooding in. And the centerpiece of the displays is a series of around seven equestrian figures, fully armored horses with riders displayed that way. And it just, it was an awe-inspiring experience. And, and um, I was at once you know, impressed by the power and the kind of otherworldliness of these creatures. But then at the same time, I also wanted to be one of them. <laughs> So so the rest of my life is is in the pursuit of that, really. Do you remember the first time that you rode in armor, for example? What's the what is the sort of essential physical sensation of being a knight? I think the the essential thing to understand about riding in armor is that it changes your balance and your center of gravity. It becomes harder to stay with the horse. And when the horse can stop quite suddenly, you can keep going. And it's harder work to stabilize yourself side to side and front to back. Um, but it's also incredibly exciting because you, you know that you're stronger and heavily armored and protected. You feel more powerful. It's like having superpowers because in a way you really do have superpowers. So that might be a good way to lead into talking a bit more generally about knights. And where does the idea of the knights come from? The idea that fighting on horseback in armour is a superior approach to combat than just running around with a, a sharp weapon in your hand? Well, it's it's quite an old idea. The ancient Greeks, the Romans, 
Carolingians, lots of cultures had armored cavalry. At a battle like Hastings, the Normans, even in the the end of the 11th century, were still essentially fighting like Roman armored cavalry. But I think the, the identity of the knight is all about the collision of all kinds of diverse factors, that there was this perfect environment really occurring in the 12th century that created the fully-fledged knight as something totally unique. The root of it, though, is fighting on horseback at a high level. You have to be a superb martial artist. You have to be a great horseman. You have to be fit. Your body needs to have had time to train and develop to support and power the armor. And all of those skills are elitist luxuries. What is it that changes in the 12th century that brings knighthood to the fore? I think it's a number of really important new trends, cultural, uh, social spiritual movements that all kind of come together. I think one of the most important things for defining who a knight was, was the First Crusade. Is the knight becomes this heroic, angelic defender of Christendom, and that gives him a definition and a direction that warriors in the earlier medieval period and in the ancient world didn't really have in the same way. This was pure good versus evil, the knights versus the devil, and anybody we care to associate with the devil. And then there's the evolving culture of courtly love and the effort by the secular community to maintain control and regulation of these warriors alongside the church. And that all leads to the definition of these warriors as a a very specific group of of people. You alluded to this a little bit earlier, that knighthood, if we're in, let's say, the 12th century, the early Plantagenet era, is something you have to train for from a young age. Give us an idea of what what childhood would be like for somebody who was, was destined to grow up to be a knight? Well, first and foremost, there are three things that they have to train. And the training is riding, your your ability to train and ride your war horses. And that starts from the age of five or six, if not even earlier, who knows? And then there's the martial arts training, being able to defend yourself both with your bare hands and with the variety of knightly weapons, the sword, the spear, and the knife on a most basic level. And then there's the wearing of the armor and the physical training of wearing and thriving in the armor and having the cardiovascular and muscular training to be able to do this effectively. Now, the riding has to happen by itself, but then once you're good at that, you can introduce the riding in armor. The fighting has to happen by itself, but then you start fighting in armor. Uh, The fighting on horseback goes together as a pair, and then you start slowly building it all together. So by the time someone is 12 or 13, they should already be pretty good at uh, fighting on horseback in armor. And where would you go to learn to be a knight? We think about William Marshall. He's sent off, I think, to a cousin of his who's sort of known for his prowess. There's not sort of knight school in the way that you would go to school to be a cleric, for example, is there? Or is there? Not sort of officially, but it is the medieval aristocratic principle that you send your your future knights to be brought up in the household of a lord who is not your father. You really need to be going out into the world and learning to deal with other people and to take orders and instruction from superior men 
So they live in the household and they have all sorts of duties that teach them all aspects of aristocratic life. They teach them about wine and they teach them about cutting meat at the table and manners and etiquette and all sorts of things beyond fighting. But their reason to exist is as warriors. So in the household of whichever nobleman is accommodating them, you have fight, fighting training regularly every day with the, the castle sergeant of arms or a knight in the household who's been assigned that duty, and there's a riding master, and there are armorers who make equipment, even for children. In modern museums today, there's a lot of armor surviving that was made for children as young as five years old. So this sounds like it's an expensive process. What if I'm the father of like five sons? Do, am I sending one off to church or two off to church and three off to be knights? How do you afford it? That's a big question. I mean, that that's an inherent aspect of the elitism of knighthood. This is not a process that's available to anyone. You do not gain these physical skills unless you are of a certain station with certain means. And the ability for an individual nobleman to provide for his children depends on his precise situation, his own proclivities, his aspirations for his children. It's normal for the eldest son to be expected to be inheriting his father's titles and responsibilities. So the eldest son normally needs to be a knight. And the younger sons either go into the military life or the church, or the ones at the bottom probably have to become mercenaries because they're not going to uh, inherit anything of their own. Each son at each level has his own you know, expectations. Can knighthood be a way of social advancement? And again, I have William Marshall in mind in this sense. He seems to scrap his way up through his prowess as a knight. Is it a way to make your path in the world? Yes. If you're one of those mid to lower level knights, you have to find a way to build that reputation. Their world revolves around honor and glory and reputation. And it's sort of like the, the so weirdly like an analog social media. The, the more followers an individual knight has, the more, the more times he can he can perform acts of valor publicly with witnesses the more his reputation goes up and the more lucrative his career is. It's a hierarchy. It's a bit like the old idea that you get at school of the feudal pyramid that de defines all of knightly society. But if you, you put that to one side and you imagine another pyramid that is just the pyramid of chivalry, the top half of the pyramid is in the uh, the divine realm. God is at the top of that pyramid. The archangels, the military angels are below that. The warrior saints are below that. And then the kings and princes of the earth are kind of in the middle of the chivalric pyramid. And they inherit their own means and rights, and they demand loyalty from the lower tiers again. And being a knight is all about finding that place in with loyalty to a nobleman. And knights struggle with this. You know, someone like William Marshall, he knows he owes loyalty to particular people, but those people, they conflict with each other and they cause problems for their servants. Of course, knighthood isn't just about the business of fighting, the mechanical side, the physical side, the competitive side. It's a culture, right? Can you give us... Uh, a good working definition of what chivalry is. And the, to begin with, let's focus on the sort of 12th century. Yeah, the 12th century is the age when the whole idea of chivalry is really developing. Chivalry is essentially a model of behavior. 
it's a system of ideals and expectations and rules of, of behavior and comportment and expectation. And it should never be confused with any larger sense of fairness or morality. Knights are capable of doing all kinds of things that we would regard as abhorrent. That chivalry is a closed system, and you only owe honor and respect to your social equals, the other members of the chivalric class. And you know, there's the element that the knight has to be the defender of the church against external threats. And then also another really important element that comes in in the 12th century is the idea of courtly love. And this is the way that the knight becomes a literary cultural figure, uh, as well as a military one, as well as a spiritual one. The idea of courtly love is that a young knight should devote himself almost romantically, almost spiritually, in a devotional way to a woman who is of a higher status than him and ultimately unattainable in a romantic sense. It's an exercise in futility. It's intended to spur that person on to great deeds of arms and to build that reputation. It is not something that you will ever achieve, but you always aspire to. And actually, in a weird way, I think it's one of the reasons, incidentally, that I have a successful marriage, I think. Because, yeah, that, that, that comes out of left field, but just stick with me for a second. <laughs> okay. People often ask me, you know, oh, is your wife, you know, interested in riding? Is your, is your wife a medievalist, whatever? My wife has no interest in any of this at all. You know, horses don't don't appeal to her. Fighting doesn't it doesn't interest her. Armor doesn't impress her. And I spend my life trying to find <laughs> something to impress her, and it is utterly futile. And we're happily married for like you know twenty years. But that's a very good analogy, and that does sort of work. In the Middle Ages, these chivalric ideas, where, where's it all coming from? Knights become central figures in poetry and song. And of course, many of them in the 12th century, there becomes this ideal of the mansingers and troubadours and trouvères and, and knights who are musicians as well. You know, they're actively involved in the artistic and literary culture of their time. So to some extent, knights are their own promoters. We're always confused about the mythic knight versus the real knight. And I, and I think, and, and that means it often it's often very hard for modern people to imagine the Middle Ages as a real place populated by real people. It all seems really abstract and weird. But that's, to some extent, the knights' fault themselves, because they wanted you to be confused. They wanted to confuse the distinction between a superhero and an ordinary human being. They needed you to believe the stories about them. So there's a, there's a conscious program of of exaggerating the knight's already very impressive abilities, and that travels by word of mouth, in song, in poetry, in official reports to courts. Suddenly, in the 12th century, the whole, the whole popular culture is, is subsumed with, with chivalry. Thanks for listening. Part two of that interview will be out next week on This Is History Plus. You can get the whole series ad-free and all the new subscriber episodes. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. 
or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back soon.